We're turning back in the Word of God tonight to the Gospel of John and to the fourth chapter. So the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, and if we're looking for a text then, no better than verse 10, though we'll be moving through the section of the chapter we've already read tonight, verse 1 through 30, but looking at verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. With God's word open before us, we'll bow together, please, in a further word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again in thy name, we come to thy throne. We thank thee that it is a throne of grace, otherwise we would be running a thousand miles away from it. A God of justice and justice alone, no blending with mercy, then we could not stand before him. But Lord, we thank thee. Thou hast told us in the word where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. We thank thee that thou hast made a way back to thyself from those dark paths of sin. There's a door, it's open. We may go in. At Calvary's cross is where we begin when we come as sinners to Jesus. We thank thee for the passage and the word of God we've read tonight and how we have a picture here, a real-life incident of a woman who came to Christ. Backing up in the previous chapter, another example of a man, Nicodemus, who came to Christ. Going into chapter 1, men who came to Christ. And we thank thee, therefore, for a book that begins and continues on that kind of trajectory where we have people flocking to the Savior. We'd love to see it today. There's no reason why it can't happen again. And we pray that across Belfast and be way beyond the doubled, send us a visitation of thy Holy Spirit and a bathing of unconverted people in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. Lord, come and speak, we pray. Do us good. Answer prayer. Help us tonight in the delivery of thy word. We ask in Jesus' name and for God's eternal glory alone. Amen. When we look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus, we discover, among many things, that he was a tremendous soul winner. Right at the beginning of the ministry, you see there the disciples, Andrew and Peter and James and John, were brought to faith in him. That's at the beginning. Then we move through right to the end of our Lord's ministry, and we find that the thief on the cross was brought into the fold of salvation. And everywhere in between, our Lord was always bringing sinners to himself. When we come, as we have done tonight, to John chapter 4, then it is no different. The story that we have here in these verses, we have Jesus doing what he did best, drawing sinners to salvation. We want to follow his track tonight 
in the preaching of this message. To note what he says to a poor-seeking woman who needs God's great salvation. And as we do, let's look at her own life and ask a few vital questions. Here is a woman who came to Christ, but I need to ask, is my soul safe? Am I born again? Have I been saved by Christ? And for those who are Christians, there's a question for you as well. You can learn from the verses we have in front of us here tonight. You can learn from this passage, our Savior's example that's documented within it. You can learn how to reach a lost world. Following His example, in reaching out to those who are unconverted, it's better than any program you can adopt, better than any course that you can sign up for. And so we're tonight in delving into John chapter 4, we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, tuning into his conversation, hearing his language as he shows himself to be the greatest ever soul winner. And our first point is this, God's pleasure for men is salvation. God's pleasure for men is salvation. Let me give you an Old Testament and also a New Testament text, the New Testament one coming first. Our Lord said, it's recorded in Luke 19, the verse 10, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so there he outlines his mission. That's why I've come to save, having sought out those who are lost. Over in the Old Testament, that text, I've chosen to be Ezekiel 33 and the verse 11, and the challenge of God is, say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And then he goes into this full-orbed appeal, turn ye. Turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Taking Luke 19.10, Ezekiel 33.11 together, we have the words of a hymn that might well strike up in our ears out in the desert. Seeking, seeking, sinner tis Jesus, seeking for thee, tenderly calling, 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 hither thy lost one, O come, unto me. And in John chapter 4, he was literally seeking somebody out in the desert. And to save her, he had to get across a number of natural and even national barriers. First of all, the difficulty that had to be overcome was a difficulty regarding the place. John 4 and 4 makes mention of the place our Lord traveled to in order to meet this woman. And he must needs go through Samaria. Let me sketch in a little bit of background here. The situation was this. For a time, the disciples of Jesus were absolutely jubilant. They'd only begun their meetings, but look, they were tremendous crowds of people attending every service. Enthusiasm was going sky high, and the disciples of John the Baptist, who witnessed what was going on, they carried a report from Jesus' meetings back to their master, John, and they said, Rabbi, 
He that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, all men come to him. We would love meetings like that in this day and generation. They were cause for satisfaction, no doubt. And there was every reason, as people were looking in to see what was happening, every reason to believe it's going to be only a matter of time before the entire nation is swayed by the power of God. Then, in the middle of all of those great meetings, suddenly our Lord seemed burdened. With a sigh, he announced the time has come for me to leave. The gospel effort is going to be transferred to another locality. And that's when we read, and he must needs go through Samaria. Now, there were two main highways from Judea, where he was, right up into the northern territory of Galilee, to which he was headed. One was the shorter of the two routes, right through Samaria. The other one, it crossed over the river Jordan, skirted around and avoided the region where the Samaritans lived, and then entered into Galilee further up there in the north. If you were a devout and an embittered Jew, you would have gone for the longer route. You would have avoided the territory of the Samaritans, and they did. And many a Jew would just go up, taking the elongated, stretched-out route just to make sure we don't rub shoulders with any of those Samaritans. Therefore, when we come across in John 4, the verse 4, this must needs, and he must needs go through Samaria, it's not, it is not a geographical must needs. He did not need to go through this territory because it wasn't the only route. This most needs here, it points us not to a geographical necessity, but it points us to a divine compulsion. Our Savior is operating according to his divine and sovereign mind, and he knows at Sychar's well in Samaria, there's a sinful woman who needs salvation, and that's why he must needs go through Samaria. Do you know something? The Lord still goes out of his way to meet sinners. He still goes, not merely the extra mile, but many, many miles to reach those who are unconverted. And that tells us, no matter where we are, even if we think we're in a place that is out of reach, out of sight, out of earshot of the voice of God, he can still get to where we are. And he can track you down and track me down. That's for sure. But there was another unusual, if not even awkward, particular that John 4 and 6 brings to our attention here, not only a problem with the place, there was a problem with the period. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. What hour was that? Six hours after sunrise. So you're at midday. In Palestine, for anybody who has been there at midday, you will know there's very little of any shade. And the heat of the sun will be absolutely intense. I see people, no jackets on tonight, just their shirt, because in here it's pretty warm. 
I was once in Israel in Bethshan when it was 41 degrees in the shade. I was there on another occasion, right in the middle of Jerusalem, and I thought, right, you know, white guy from Northern Ireland, need a suntan before I get back, and I'm led out at the edge of a fountain in the middle of Jerusalem, and all of a sudden my eyes are closed, and there's somebody shouting right this close to my face. Turned out to be a Russian Jewish woman. I hadn't a clue what she was telling me, because it was in her language, certainly not mine. But she was animated, and one thing registered, she wants me to move away from where I am. Now, at that time, there was a lot of problem with the Palestinians. For all I knew, it could have been a bomb in the fountain that she had seen. And did it take me a second invitation to move? I moved. Rather sheepishly, but pretty quickly as well. I later discovered what she was trying to communicate to me was, you are a total idiot. This is midday. You're lying in the sun. This is craziness at its height. And of course, so it was. But here, the very same time, at the sixth hour midday, with that time of intense sunlight, well, people wouldn't be journeying at this time. And they wouldn't be sitting out on a well in the middle of nowhere at this time. That's not the time to do it. Jacob's well, that's where it was, was about half a mile outside the village. Most of the people would have been resting at this hour of the day. But this woman, she really should have been with the other woman, which would have been at the well, not at midday, but round about early morning. That's when they clustered. That's when they came with their vessels to dip into the well. That's when they had a little bit of a chinwag and a gossip around the well and caught up in the news of that locality at that particular time. But those women... She wasn't part of them. She wasn't part of their grouping. Because she's alone, because she's coming at the hottest time of the day, that's an indication very clearly that she is a social outcast. The other woman would have nothing to do with her. And she no doubt came to the well to avoid the insults and to sidestep the attacks of the other woman from that area. And the reason... For her ostracization is clear when you read verse 16 and 17 because she was moving in and out through the men of that locality and not just standing there for on toes. She was hated even by her own people. But a question before we leave this point of timing, how did Jesus Christ know that she would be coming at all? She may have had enough water at home to last another day, or at least to eke out a little longer. Obviously, the Lord knew that she was coming, just as he knew that Nathaniel would be under the fig tree that we read off in John chapter 1. He knew the time of her arrival. In fact, he knew every single thing about her. All along the way of life, the Lord Jesus positions himself in our pathway. We kind of cruise through life, you know, without much thought for God or much thought for His plan or thought for His Son or thought for His salvation. And then, right out of the blue, Jesus is there, right in our faces. And He establishes these crossroads to encounter us, to meet us, to bring about our salvation. 
thank God for the strategic crossroads of his good pleasure and of his divine purpose as he searches and seeks us for his salvation. So we've thought of the period. We've thought of another difficulty, the place. There was a third difficulty here, and that revolves around the prejudice. And you tune into that in verse 9 of John chapter 4. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? You might as well, in Ulster history, put in Catholics and Protestants here, and you'll get an evaluation of the same kind of thought. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, the roots of prejudice between Jews and Samaritans. They went right down, driving deep into history. Many people had tried to heal them and bring them together, but it had not happened. Centuries of bad blood existed still between them. When the land of Canaan was divided away back in the days of Joshua, among the tribes of Israel, Samaria was given to the tribe of Ephraim, to the half-tribe of Manasseh, and then rebellion in later years split the nation. Those people, they generally stopped worshipping at Jerusalem. Idolatry got in among them, sin spread through its territories. Later, when the people of the land are carried away captive, the king of Assyria arranged that some of his own people would come back with them, take over the land, populate it, colonize it, and from that time on, you have a strange mixture of folk, and they are tilling the soil of Samaria. It's written of them in 2 Kings chapter 17, to verse 33. They, on the one hand, feared the Lord, and the other, they served their own God. So they had a kind of a hybrid religion. When the captives returned to their homeland of Judea from Babylon and other captivity, the Samaritans offered to enter into an alliance with them. But when that was refused, they became the biggest enemies that the returning people had. Now we spin on through history to the days of Alexander the Great. A temple was built at that time on Mount Gerizim, directly opposing the worship of the Jews in the temple at Jerusalem. If there was a divide between the before, that divide is now wider than ever. And this woman, in John 4, makes reference to this big division in the way that they worshipped. But, let me tell you this, there is no type of person, there is no race of person beyond the reach of God's grace. We're all together born of one blood. Skin makes no difference. And if Jesus is going to reach out to, to the most hated people of his day, then it's up to us, his children, to tear down, dismantle every wall of prejudice and reach out to people regardless of where they are, where they come from, who they are. So there were real problems. That's the point we're making. Real problems, obstacles, hurdles that Jesus faced in getting to this woman. Problems with the place. Problems with the timing, the period. Problems with the prejudice as well. And we haven't yet got to the biggest difficulty of all. 
the biggest wall standing in the way of her salvation was her sin, her pollution. And we address that in our second point. God's good pleasure for men is salvation. That's number one. Two, God's practice in salvation is to present the Savior, is to present the Lord Jesus Christ, for He and He alone is the Savior. One time when we were on a little bit of a tour around Norwich Cathedral, Right about seven miles away or so, there's a village, Swordston. That lady, who was a nurse in Belgium, city of Brussels, brought out in October 1950, 1915 before the firing squad shot because she'd helped British soldiers escape into Holland, Edith Cavill. Well, she was brought up in Swordston. Her father was the local Anglican vicar. We wondered, was he a sea of man? We found his tombstone, and the question was answered, because there on the tombstone of Frederick Cavill were these words, none but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. This woman, if she was to be saved, you and I, if we are to be saved, there's only one who can do helpless sinners good. And that one is Christ. Notice how our Lord introduced his witness on this occasion. He started in verse 7. A good plan for the soul winner. He started by talking about what the woman was doing. Monday in occurrence. She's drawing water out of a well. Very ordinary chore. That's where he starts in talking and engaging in conversation. And from that ordinary platform... He drew an extraordinary application, verse 9 through verse 15, because he went on to talk about himself as being the water of life that can satisfy thirsty souls. It was so simple, yet so powerful and so profound. The hymn writer said Jesus gave her water that was not in the well. And that's exactly what happened. And that's a lesson to us. As we are going out, engaging with souls, witnessing to them about Jesus Christ, don't, don't pass up the commonplace, the mundane practices of earth, so that you can use those, talk about those, and then get on to spiritual discussion, because that was our Lord's method. We don't have to go in and take out of the bag our big theological double-barreled shotgun and start bursting out unpronounceable terminology. That's not what Jesus did. And during the course of this discussion about Christ, the living water, light dawns, but it dawns gradually upon this woman's heart and mind. By presenting Christ to the woman involved him, getting her perception. And he, having got her perception, gave her the correct perception. She needed knowledge on many religious themes. That comes into play in verse 20 through to 25. She needed knowledge of Christ in particular. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest, because she didn't know, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is, 
that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, he would have given thee living water. She didn't know about salvation. She didn't know the person of the Savior. What a tragedy that the Creator, whose hands fashioned the plants, who made both men and women, what a tragedy. He should stand before people who he has made and remain to them unknown. What blindness. He could be within a yard, yet be missed by a mile. I have an old gospel song that rings in my head from time to time with the guy drawling it out. And one of the lines that is pretty meaningless unless it's got some context is, would they know him in Shreveport today? Would they know him in Shreveport today? Do they have any greater knowledge of him in Belfast? That's the real question. The answer is no. You may have noted the census. We referred to it in this morning's message, 2021 census. Did you know that 27% of the population in Northern Ireland profess they have no religion whatsoever? That's 27% across the board, stretching through Northern Ireland. We know there are rural communities where people will say, no, no, we have our religion, and the percentage will be high. And there will be places where it is going to be very low. When you look through the DES, breakup of the council areas, you would be staggered. Balmoral, Titanic, Court, all the areas you recognize in Belfast, most of them are hitting in at 40% plus of the people who say they have no religion whatsoever. Over 40% through most of Belfast. Now you get over to West Tyrone and it's down to about 3%. That is frightening. Would they know him? In Belfast today, the answer is they don't, by and large. And many at this point don't want to know. But Christ came here to this woman in spiritual darkness, and he talks with her, and the light begins to shine. Notice the stage as he brings her through. She begins in verse 9, in verse 15, by calling him a Jew, or calling him simply Sir. She identified him, maybe by his accent or dress, as a Jew, maybe a bit of an itinerant rabbi. And she must have been amazed even at that, because a Jewish man would not be talking to her. But then her knowledge increases a little bit in that discussion. Verse 19, she calls him a prophet. So she comes from a mere man now to the messenger. He is the prophet. And when she asks for the living water that Jesus is talking about, it's obvious she's only thinking about, how can I stop coming out to the well day by day by day and avoid all the potential abuse and everything else? But our Lord knew her greater ability was, or greater need was, the ability to see, to see with the eyes of the heart, to see with the eyes of the understanding, to perceive spiritual things. What does he do? He throws right into the mix in verse 16 this call, go, call thy 
husband. And that was the first thing, the first trigger that identified her spiritual need. I don't have a husband. And then it opens away further to the discussion whereby she's saying, I've had five. Jesus says, yes, and the one you're with now is not your husband at all. And then she bursts out and says, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet, because he knew all about her before she even told him. But she moves from the man to the messenger, to, if you look at it, verse 29, the Christ, the Messiah, this prophet was different, leagues above anybody else, absolutely wonderful. Maybe he would know where Messiah was going to come. So in verse 25, the woman saith unto him, I know the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. And so we have from her a word of assurance here. I know the Messiah cometh. There's a word of appreciation. He is called Christ. That's who he is. There's a word of authenticity. When he has come, he will tell us all things because he knows all things and he speaks the truth. And by the time she gives her witness to those in her hometown, she has gone on beyond the point when Jesus has already told her here, I am the Messiah. What is he described at? In verse 42, he's described there as the Christ, the Savior. Now, this lady is no different to any other sinner who has ever walked the face of this earth. Like all sinners... We have problems far bigger than being potentially some kind of a social pariah even. The problem is we're estranged, not only in our neighborhood, but estranged from God. That's far worse. The Bible makes it very clear. Our sin stands between us and God, breaks down any relationship, makes impossible any relationship between us and Him. And if we have never received Him as our personal Savior, then we are lost and undone without the Lord, without hope in this life, without hope in the world to come. We need the Savior. We need the one who is the mediator, the one who bridges the gap between a poor lost sinner and a holy God. And in 1 Timothy 2 and 5, we're told who that mediator is, the one before the woman at the well that day, Jesus Christ. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He's the Savior you need. So he gives her perception. He also offers her plenty In John 4, 9 through 15, he's talking about living water. You're going to be satisfied when you drink this. It's water of the spring variety, not water out of a cistern or stagnant water here. In Genesis 26 and 19, we're told, Isaac's servants digged in the valley, found there a well of springing water. They dug down and they find this subterranean spring out of which they meet a well. And what a well it was, Leviticus 14 and 5. You can compare that text. So our Lord is talking here about living water. Water that's not stuck and stagnant but on the move. Water that's flowing and always flowing. Reproducing itself like a spring. Water, he says, here's what I'm angling at. He tells the woman, I'm talking about eternal life. That's the water I give. That's the water you need. Eternal life. And in that, there is complete satisfaction. 
Sometimes we sing the hymn, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, those waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wheeled. And here's what I discovered, now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. Then our Lord communicated something of his power to this woman. Look at verse 25 and 26 of John chapter 4. The woman saith unto him, I know the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Seven times he responds to her. This is the final time, number seven, that he answers the woman. Seven in the Bible, the picture of perfection. This is the final, the complete, the perfect revelation of God to a sinner. Notice something. A little bit technical, but worth noting on the way through. The word he, in verse 26, I that speak unto thee am he, in italics in the Bible, put in by translators to fill up the sense, to indicate there's no corresponding word in the Greek New Testament, but the Greek words in the original, very forceful at this point, ego I me, literally means I am. I am, rings what bell? The bell back in Exodus 3 and 14, the name of Jehovah, the great I am, that's his name. Our Lord is saying to this woman, it is I am who is speaking to you. Not only claim to be the Messiah, claim to be all that Isaiah predicted about the Messiah, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. And here is a mighty Savior who could do exactly what she needed to deliver her from her sin. Final point. God's pleasure for men is salvation. God's practice in salvation is to present the Savior. God's purpose after salvation is service. And you'll see that in verse 28 through the verse 30. You'll see another section, 39 through 42 in John chapter 4. Eventually, she gets it. She gets the meaning of our Lord's words. And she abandons her water pot, and she runs right back into the city. A thrilling story is coming out of her lips right now. The living water is overflowing her soul. Her love for Christ demands you go try to reach others and try to reach others. She did. Verse 29, she says, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Let me, she's saying, introduce all of you to Jesus. That's what we need to be doing. So we have an untutored woman here, an immature, spiritually speaking woman, who becomes the first female evangelist in the New Testament. God uses her to reach an entire city. Now, let me venture to say this. Perhaps the most polished sermon ever to be preached or constructed, preached in that city, would have left the whole place unmoved, but a real experience, a living example of Jesus' power to save. 
This woman I with a desire to serve, infilled by living water, with God helping her, I tell you, even the weakest saint can laugh at impossibilities. This God took a little shepherd lad to topple the mighty Goliath. This God gave a Hebrew slave Daniel more wisdom than all the collective wisdom in Babylon. This God selected not a princess, but a peasant girl to be the mother of the Savior. This God called a bunch of Galilean fishermen to be his most prominent and effective heralds. He can do anything. And now he starts a mighty work in Sychar by the testimony of this converted woman. And she was fruitful in her witness. Now notice something. Many people believe in this city. What fully persuaded, what saved the majority in the city? Notice very carefully what it was. And you can pick out the detail in the Greek New Testament probably better than in our English translation. In verse 41 and 42, you see a big contrast. Two different words are used. And many more, verse 41, believe because of his own Word, that's one of the things. Word, his own word. Verse 42 then. Now we believe not because of thy saying her word, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. When they were talking about because of his word, they used the richer word logos. The name used by John to describe Christ in the beginning was the Word, John 1 and 1. And that suggests they had been digging down somehow into the depth of his person. They knew the authority by which he was speaking. And by contrast, well, the woman's story was a nice story. It was a good testimony, but it was the Word of Jesus that really took their hearts. And that's in keeping with the great principles of evangelism. My duty as a preacher, yours as one to testify, is to introduce hearers to Christ. Why? Because it's Christ's word that converts. They heard, they came, they saw, they prayed, they believed, they testified. It's all in the passage. And it's because Jesus spoke to their hearts. And that's what Belfast needs today. That's what every weary woman and every sun-drenched well needs to hear. Everyone avoiding most of society needs to hear. Anyone conscious of their sin and need needs to hear. They need to hear the voice of Christ. I'm asking you to pray if you're not saved. Lord, speak to my soul. And speak clearly and speak powerfully. And even though it is uncomfortable for me, Lord, speak with thy word to my soul. And for those who are converted, those who are converted, get on the track of our Lord's example here in soul winning. And let's be soul winners before this year is over.